0: Women get a little bit forgotten. Their history is a little bit untold. But when we really look at history and the scriptures, we really see that the role that women played was so vital and essential.
1: Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Simone Riscala. Simone, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much, Joey. So happy to be here. I'm excited we got
1: to connect. Thank you for saying yes.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Simone, before we dive
1: into our episode today, can you give a little bit about yourself and the work that you do?
0: Oh boy, sure. Well, I guess uh, a little bit about myself. I'm a first generation American. So my parents are Armenians from uh, Cairo, Egypt. So if you've ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that's very, very similar to the kind of life uh, that I've lived, (laughs) at least uh, growing up. And uh, right now, um, at a a big surprise, um, I ended up doing professional church work, if you will. And my latest gig is with this organization called endow, uh, which stands for educating on the nature and dignity of women. So, um, what we do is create study guides, um, that women use in small group communities to grow their intellectual life, but not just, not just for the sake of an intellectual life, but an intellectual life that becomes a transformation in real life. And so, and, and it's order to uh, the recognition, um, the cultivation of the feminine genius and the feminine vocation. So it is, I love it. I'm super happy to be with Endow.
1: That's fantastic. And it's a great setup for our conversation today, which we are discussing the genius of the feminine. Uh, This conversation really uh, started for me when I found you hosting another podcast, which we'll link in the show notes, uh, and it was so beautifully done, and I, I was just really drawn to the the power of the words and the power of the subject. Uh, so, Simone, before we dive into it, the church has historically segregated men and women using passages and verses and scriptures uh, to, to kind of point how certain behaviors should work in our society and, and also within our churches, but before we dive into it, how would you define that term, the genius of the feminine? What, what do we mean when we say that?
0: that is, now that's the question, isn't it? Um, I, would, I would have to say that for anybody who wants to take that question seriously, to take a look at a woman named Ida Stein. She was a, a Jewish woman uh, born in uh, Germany, modern day Poland, and she wanted to study philosophy, uh, but that was considered a man's field in the 1930s, uh, but her mother said, no, I support you. I want, I want you to go study philosophy, even if, if, even if it is a male-dominated field, which is really funny that how much through generations, kind of concepts and ideas of things change. Uh, sometimes philosophy gets a bad reputation now, like as something flaky. But back then it was like, oh, no, like this isn't for women. This is serious business. This is serious thinking. This is for men. Um, but she ended up studying. She had become an atheist in her youth. She had left her Jewish faith. And uh, decided to pursue philosophy, and in pursuing philosophy, um, was really part of this German philosophical movement called phenomenology under Edmund Husserl. And Husserl, who was her mentor and her intellectual mentor, and she ended up being an assistant for her, um, basically said, "Like you deserve to be a professor, but uh, women ought not be professors. But if there if there were female professors, you definitely qualify." and you know, out, intellectually outrun kind of the men. Um, so anyway, long story short, I guess a little bit late, she ends up writing uh, essays on women and begins lecturing about the feminine vocation all over Europe. And what one of her lines uh, that I kind of use to answer your question um, is that women, and there's so, there's so many ways to approach it, but, but this is what jumps out at me is that the feminine vocation are healers and they're crafters of souls. So they're, they're. Uh, it and, and she also says that the world doesn't need what women have; it needs what, who women are. So first, there's this like primacy of being over doing, this primacy of vocation over occupation. But then the the contribution of a woman's presence and her presence um, and her personal vocation kind of manifesting in gosh a variety of ways. Um, it ultimately is a healer and crafter of souls. So that's, that's how I would, uh, that's, I have to borrow from her. But I think what's fascinating about Edith is that um, she was very interested in gender issues and gender roles and was kind of bored all over, lecturing all over Europe, because the question that everybody was asking was, um, well, can women do what men can do? And for her, that was a really boring question. Well, of course they can. What's the interesting question is that how a woman does things is very different from how men do things. And that is the interesting philosophical question. So, um, And then she ends up actually converting to Christianity. She becomes, and eventually she becomes a Catholic nun, a Carmelite, and she is executed in Auschwitz on August 9th, 1942. Um, And she had this intuition that um, somebody else would kind of work on her philosophy and that somebody else, uh, at least in the Catholic tradition is John Paul II. Uh, who wrote uh, on the nature and dignity of women uh, and also wrote a letter to all women of the world. He wrote a letter that he addressed to every single woman in the world about what it means to be a woman and the value and dignity of women. And he said that women are um, vital and essential for a healthy society and for a healthy church. So he really took what she worked on and put it out there as much as possible.
1: And that's the end of our episode. Thanks for listening (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. There's so much in there. There's so I mean, much. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's it's nothing to apologize for. But like, okay, so you're speaking from a Catholic perspective. Mine's a little bit more evangelical. I've never heard that. I've been in the church 32 years.
0: I know. And by the That's way, unbelievable. I consider myself an evangelical Catholic. I've been formed by uh, evangelical circles, and I have such a huge uh, appreciation and have been formed by evangelical circles. I'm especially excited to talk to you, Joey just wanted to put that out there.
1: No, I I appreciate it. And and the more we do this, I think the better we both and we all become. Yes. Yes. So, so speaking to that, you had mentioned, uh, you know, some of the historical need to speak to the importance of women. But as we look to some of the uh, the history um, we do see the focus is on the disciples. The focus is on the apostles in Acts. We literally have a book entitled that. But what role did women play in that early church?
0: Yes. Well, I mean, thank I mean, thank God for women. Otherwise, I don't know that um, the apostles' work could have extended as 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 impressively and as vastly as they did. So certainly, we know that that Jesus, I mean, God created women and men with dignity, period, right? Um, But Jesus really treated women with this radical dignity and really elevated who they were. And we know that just from reading the scriptures and scandalizing the Pharisees and, you know, all these stories. And he had Mary Magdalene in his little posse and the crucial role of his mother. And so we see that women... um, really latched on to the dignity that Jesus uh, treated them with, and then like ran wild with it. And so the primary drivers of, you know, the Roman empire's conversion was women. Um, so it was men b- very much in the hierarchy and in like the official titles and officially in charge. Right. But it was so much of the behind the scenes role of women that were driving that history. And that is such an interesting story. I I mentioned Mary Magdalene because, at least in the Catholic tradition, her title, what she's remembered as, how we celebrate her in the church, is the Apostle to the Apostles, which is a supreme honor. Um, that even though, you know, we have a papacy and we have apostolic tradition and so forth, but it is Mary Magdalene who is remembered as the apostle to the apostles. And the reason is, is because she was the first to witness to the resurrection. So she was the first to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And then she ran and tells the, you know, the apostles, I've seen the Lord. And so she's the first evangelizer to them. So that is where she gets that title. Uh, she also has the title of the first witness to the, to the divine mercy. Um, so, she, you know, women get a little bit forgotten. Their history is a little bit, un, is a little bit untold. Um, but when we really look at history and the scriptures, we really see that the role that women played was, as John Paul II said, so vital and essential. And I, I'm remembering now, as I'm speaking to you, this meeting that he had with the College of Cardinals in 1987, which you see the sea of men, right? The, the sea of church men's hierarchy, very intimidating. And uh, he begins that meeting saying, all this is possible because of a woman. And he's referring to, to the mother of Jesus because she said yes, she said yes. And this was her personal vocation, this was her role, but she, in her saying yes to the angel Gabriel that she would conceive the son of God, um, every, all of this newness that we all experience, the newness that Christianity brings was possible. So I, I, he, he, you know, he really, he really wanted to bring out in modern times, um, the essential role that women play.
1: It's really interesting. And if we just pause right there and sort of unpack that. You could look into the Old Testament and, and, you know, when God comes to Abraham, when God comes to Daniel, when God comes to whoever, there is sort of this God telling you, you will now do this. Mm-hmm. And I need to go back and, and verify this, but that is, the encounter with Mary is sort of the first I will, the, the response of yes. the willingness. Yes. Um, yes. And it's really interesting that that happens with a woman.
0: Yes. The fiat, she says fiat, the Latin word, you know, let it be done. Let it be done according to your word so this is why again i'm speaking from a catholic point position um, why we look so much to mary because um, she was the first disciple she was the first one to say yes to the will of god in the new covenant and um that's a huge huge honor it's why we refer to the church's mother uh why the church is seen as a she right um because because why is she the first disciple? Why is she the one that we look to? Yes, that fact. But also because in our discipleship, our discipleship is this like beautiful, God-willing fruitfulness of this like creative collaboration with God's will and our freedom. It's like mysterious collaboration going on. And her saying yes, and as disciples, for us to say yes, to say yes to God, to say yes to whatever beauty he's trying to bring out of our circumstances, oftentimes very difficult ones, but the beauty he's trying to bring out of our lives. Uh, always, Mary helps us do that. She said yes with all of the circumstances, the practical circumstances anyway, really working against her, but she still said yes with trust, not knowing at all what was gonna you know, really happen. And we can kind of look to her to be inspired in the same way, which is why, Theologians have written that of all the, I mean, this is, I'm thinking of um, Hans Urs or- von Balthasar, um, who said that of the, the all the four, it, there are four traditional images of the church, um, the Petrine based on St. Peter, which is kind of the institutional hierarchical, right, the one we think of when we think of church, mainly. Um, the um, the, the Johannine after St. John, the, the, you know, resting on the breast of Jesus, the contemplative, the prayer, prayerful church, um, the the Pauline after St. Paul, the evangelizer, the missionary. And then there's the Marian, which is the receptive one, um, the, the the image of receptivity, of saying yes to the surprise that Christ brings into our life. And so Balthazar will say of all those images, all those images Subsist under the Marian one, and the Marian model, which is the feminine model, is the, is the highest one because all discipleship ultimately is a receptivity to what God is proposing in our life here and now.
1: It's fascinating,
0: yeah. And I think we can all fit into one of those images in terms of our like charisms and our gifts and our spiritual gifts and our, our you know attractions. Like, typically, we we uh, we are attracted to one or the other. For me, I love the Pauline. I love the, the missionary aspects of the church, and I think my gifts are suited to that, but I think every disciple can place themselves uh, into one of those.
1: Now, speaking of Paul, he mentions in Galatians 3 that, you know, essentially he's turning things on its head by saying that there is no male, there is no female. He also goes in and says there's no Greek or Jew, slave or free, but we're all under Christ. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And yet today, in 2021, we're still dealing with things like toxic masculinity and overdone gender roles. Uh, And we see that in the world, but we also see it in the church. Uh Why do you think that this doesn't hit us? This passage doesn't really affect us the way that it potentially could.
0: Well, I think I want to understand, Joy, what you mean by, um, what was that phrase you used? Um,
1: oh, yeah, sure. Over, overdone gender roles. Yeah.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: So so understanding gender roles, uh, you know, f- first of all, you have to ascribe to a gender role. Like because you're a man, you do X. Because you're oh, a woman, right. you do X. See, yeah. And then deciding that you don't want to do those, so you swing the other way and i think personally there can be a balance between sensitive and strong and yeah. you know you can go down the list right so yes. if you yes. if you decide that you're just going to stick to one and then you're going to overdo that in an attempt to not be yeah. Yeah. gender specified that's where things can yeah. kind of get out of out of whack and i personally have seen that a lot in the church where guys see themselves as uh, sensitive, but then they need to become the the biblical version of David, and you know, like so we overdo it.
0: Yeah, I that's see. more of what I mean. I see what you mean now. Yes, I think that. Um, yes, it's very annoying. <laughs> it's very very annoying
1: because <laughs> that's a great response.
0: It, it's just it's it, it, right. It's annoying uh, because it's such a stereotype of of the person, right? I mean, yes, females tend to have dominant feminine energy. Obviously, man, men masculine energy, and those do have. I mean. We have two sexes and there are roles and there are emphasized, but we cannot be slaves to them like their ideologies, because each person is unique and unrepeatable, right? And so we cannot reduce ourselves or, I mean, this, I think this question is a specific question, but it taps into a larger problem in the church, which is that we reduce Christianity to an idea. But Christianity is not primarily an idea or an ideology, or a political system. Christianity is an encounter with the person of Jesus who blows up all of our categories. So, so the, I think this question uh, is one, one way in which the reduction of the gospel has like really tangible consequences. So yeah, going back to Edith, I mean, Edith will say that, yeah, there, she, she even wrote about, you know, qualities of masculine the masculine genius um, that are different than the feminine genius. But again, she is not reducing men and women to occupation, but to vocation and to feminine and masculine souls, but not in a stereotypical way. And I think what you're saying, I've seen it happen where like things like, well, the man is the spiritual head of the household. And so, blah," you know, you know, woman be quiet or something. Um, <laughs> so that, that's such a like huge, dramatic um, ideological way to, it's like you're taking Christianity and you're applying it. Like it's an application as opposed to Christ changing you and that being the way that you humanize and relate and are open to the reality of your life and and whatever circumstance you're in. So I think your question is a good one that taps into like my big pet peeve that the gospel is often reduced to ideological, you know, or ethical, you know, moralistic Uh, emphasize, or on the other hand, like sentimentality and like therapy and emotions and whatnot. And instead, this is like the, the constant dynamic, super intense, emotionally draining encounter with Jesus Christ and letting that dominate, you know, what I do and who I am. And in light of that, then we, we can be really relieved and spared of all of these, like you're going on this, like, exhausting scavenger hunt of like, well, you know, what, I, how should I behave as a man? How should I behave as a woman? Instead of just looking at the human person and letting it, letting it begin with them.
1: Okay. So one of the things that I love that you just pointed out was that the resurrected Christ appeared to a woman first, not a man. And looking at women within the biblical narrative, none of them are nobility, none of them are mentioned as highly educated, uh, none of them are special from a worldly perspective. And I say this because if you're going to appeal to someone about the uniqueness and amazing quality of your new religion, so to speak, the breakaway from Judaism, you'd want to talk about the characters within the narrative and, and how special they are, right? But that's not what we find within the story of women throughout the Bible and the church does that, like, how should that affect us as modern followers of Jesus? Like, what, what's the implication of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think what you're asking is, is that perhaps um, the church has adopted, like, a very worldly attitude in trying to appeal to, like, influencers and celebrities and uh, important people to get all the cool kids in the club, but, like, Jesus was literally befriending the least um i mean women in the early church had zero legal rights uh their testimony meant nothing in court um they were frequently unpreferred by their fathers and aborted so like there's archaeological sites of um aborted baby girl fetuses and you know all all, the, all of that so it's it's one of those incredible incredible paradoxes of our faith and history and reality that the women whose testimony whose witness literally meant nothing in the empire, their testimony, their witness, become the most powerful force in history uh, in the Christian faith and in Western civilization. So, I mean, if you want to take a minute to think about that, that women being, you know, not even second-class citizens, but not even considered people at all, literally property, um, then become like the drivers of the church and the drivers then of history and the drivers of Western civilization. That is an incredible thing to wrap your mind around, and he did it, uh, and Jesus did it through uh, the method of hiddenness. Um, so I think in the church, like moving forward, you know this, you know this new millennium that we've entered into, that we we cannot be afraid of being small and hidden. What that requires, I think, now I'm going to quote Edith Stein again, and she says that if a woman's presence is really going to foster this uh, incredible dynamism and change in whatever her circumstances, she must be deeply rooted within herself, and namely, to be deeply rooted within Christ. For us, we have to, as men and women in the church, for us to really be able to hear the subtle voice of the Holy Spirit, we have to be deeply rooted in ourselves and deeply rooted in Christ. And oftentimes that isn't about social media followings and influencers and all that it is really the, the subtle voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Turn here to the right or to the left. Um, we cannot be afraid to be small. It is from hiddenness and smallness, the mustard seed, that everything, true, true things emerge. And maybe you feel the same way, Joey, but you see all these like Christian things, again, like this Christian bumper stickers, those, like, big things. But then like so little fruitfulness and discipleship. Why? Uh, because there's such an, ex- there's such an emphasis on the external and so little on that internal interior formation. And that, that's, that's needed. Um, again, uh, I am thinking of um, Mother Teresa, who, you you know, she was uh, teaching high school and teaching, you know, Catholic girls in Catholic high school in India. And you can't say that this woman wasn't a good Christian. She was, I mean, she was, she gave up her life. She's a sister, you know, educating these young girls, but so, so deeply rooted, so attuned to the Holy Spirit that she really felt this insane, uh, I mean, really insane call to go to where the poorest of the poor are in Calcutta and take care of them. Um, I mean, this is like, this is the craziness of Jesus. Because
1: right. That's not bumper sticker faith. That's not
0: bumper sticker faith. That's like in a completely new thing. Christ was completely new. God becoming man, completely new. Everything else is old. Only Jesus is new. And this idea, this intuition, this call within a call, she say to, to go to the, like the least worldly place, the place where nobody cares about and just say, I can't even like, I, all I can do is accompany them on their death. Can't even save their life, but all I can do is be with them and let them know that they're loved in their last moments. And what I, when I go pondering within my heart, I ponder the fact that the only reason we know about Mother Teresa is because a British journalist discovered what she was doing. But had he not, this stunning saint, you know, th- where, and one of, the, one of the people that she cared for said, I, I, I live like, I live like garbage, but I die like a king because of you, right? She would have continued to do that for decades. And we would never have known who she was had not somebody discovered her, but it wouldn't have mattered for her. She's just simply following the call of Jesus in her life. It's really a luxury for us to critique and complain about the church. I love what Chesterton says. I think he says this in his book, Orthodoxy, um, that you can only criticize that which you love. Um, so I think we love the church. We can criticize ourselves and, and our, and our, uh, in our church, but, um, you know, the whole idea of this question that we can even take this question seriously about women's dignity, we can only take that seriously because of Jesus. This wouldn't even be, a, this wouldn't even be a conversation if it wasn't for Jesus Christ in the church. At all. So like all the arguments we have about toxic masculinity, toxic femininity and gender roles and all that, this is all because the world adopted a Christian worldview that men and women have equal dignity. And that's because of that's because of Christianity.
1: Now, Simone, some churches will look at that topic of of feminism or even equality and being male led. And, you know, they'll hear that and say, "Okay, that's not the way I was brought up. I understand what you're saying, but then fear sets in Uh, and fear will always win over progress with some people, you know, that there's, you know, whether it's financially driven or just, or just, you know, fear tactics settling in, um, the progress and the equality may not happen. How does the church balance the equality of God's view on gender within the, the fact that we live in a broken world?
0: Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, I think, I think the best way to really a- approach this question is kind of an educational one in that to be educated on the feminine genius, to be educated on the masculine genius, to continue to have conversations about what beyond all these stereotypes and again, the reduction of the question of vocation to just occupation, what I do or not do. Uh, which is really a reduction of the human person, right? To reduce the human person to like the roles I have at church. Like I, as, as a Catholic, I, 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 I'm so impatient with the conversation about women priests and about girl altar servers, because altar servers, because for me, that means that it's still a masculine driven criteria. And in the Catholic church, we don't have women priests and we never will. That that has been dogmatically shut down as not Jesus's method. And so, when when there are circles that want to talk about that, that, that will say that the church isn't being equal to women uh, because she can't, because women can't be priests. I'm saying that then, why why is that um, a, an inappropriate masculine criteria? Because you're defining women based on whether or not they're doing things that men do, and can women be? can women do what priests do and do them just as well, if not better, might I add? Okay. Yeah, sure. Of course. (laughs) But that is such a low level conversation to have because you're basically defining equality based on what I do or what I not do instead of who I am and what I'm called to and vocations, even our, our entire being, like we are imagined, we were created by God, you know, you formed, uh, you know, in the, wo- I knew you before, you know, that quote from Jeremiah, right? About like I, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, right? That there's a vocation that we each have. So I think paradoxically, the way that we can get outside of these like ideological reductive conversations is to look at each single human person in the church as being uniquely and unrepeatedly called by God beyond stereotypes and say, what is it that you are being called by God to do and to be and to become and begin from there? Because gosh, if I read all the books about what it means to be a woman or men, or all the books about what it means to be a man, I'm again becoming um, ideological. I'm, I'm having other these other ideas kind of impose on me, something that in fact is already embedded within me. If you, if you want to talk about um about kind of like the contributions of women in the early church i would love to talk about a little bit about that if you're interested in that
1: I'm, I'm very interested. Can you give, uh, and especially if our listeners are are intrigued about, okay, what is that, but I don't even know where to start. Like, could you give maybe just a, a toe in the water as to some of the contributions that we're not even aware of with women in the early church?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, the again like we look to um the mother of jesus as kind of that first disciple the first one to conform her will to the will of god and to allow radical newness to enter history in jesus um and then another main player mary magdalene right the first the apostle to the apostles right that very elevated title uh the first witness divine mercy and then of course you know anyone who's familiar with acts and the scriptures can see like various women mentioned in there and named um, but then moving moving on, as the church began to be evangelized, um, the women were the first converts. And it makes sense, right? It makes sense that in a, in a patriarchal society um, where men were considered citizens and human beings and women were considered property, um, that of course uh, that women are going to join this thing that says that you have dignity and value simply in your being. And that the people who are uh, the disciples and the apostles of Jesus are treating you and looking at you in a completely new way, the way that Jesus must have looked at the Samaritan woman, right, and the woman at the well, that just uh, an attunement and a a dignity just in the way that he uh, humanely approached and spoke with her. So you're encountering these people that look at you in a way that no one's looked at you before. You are going to start to follow to be a disciple and to see who are these people that treat me like nobody else has ever treated me before in my life that who look who make eye contact with me. Um, anyway, so there's that. Of course, the women were going to be the first, <laughs> first major converts, and then you know if all the women are going uh, and they're you know to become Christians, uh, pagan men also start converting. And, and that's also very uh, kind of funny to think about because, yeah, this is where the, the influence of women is so, so powerful that men really become noble and elevated in front of a woman who has, has um, a firm grasp on, on her influence and her authority and her dignity. So there's, there's that. And then during the plagues, the ancient plagues, uh, Christian families took care of each other. And they took care of their pagan neighbors completely gratuitously. And even when um, pagans abandoned their own families and you know, their records of like pagan doctors who you know knew the plagues were coming and knew how sick people would be and just like leaving the city and leaving everybody behind, Christians were staying and taking care of not just their own, but their pagan neighbors. So in front of such kindness, I mean, in front of such charity and love, um, it's again, Um, Not surprising that so many pagans converted that way too. And even before Constantine legalized Christianity um, at the Edict of Milan in the 312, right, already he was was really legalizing a religion that had already started to take shape and form and convert in massive amounts, which is stunning when you think about not just the fact that uh, that the the culture that Christianity was born into, but also the fact that, that Christians were persecuted for centuries for longer than America has been a country where Christians persecuted in the Roman Empire. And yet, in front of such horrific tortures, discriminations, and martyrdoms, the church still continues to flourish. Um, And you have saints like St. Agnes, you know, who who was 12 years old and who was brutally murdered. Um, But what a stunning witness that she would not, um, when she was a child, would not give up her uh, fidelity to Jesus and people like Saint Perpetua, who actually um, her and her slave uh, Felicity both converted, and it was illegal. It was at that point it was legal to be a Christian, but illegal to convert to Christianity. And she was wealthy um, and was willing to give up not just her wealth, but in her status, but uh, also her child. I mean, so she her her family would bring her baby to breastfeed the baby in prison. You know, and and Felicity, her slave, was pregnant, um, and yet, I mean, what do you love more than your child and your family? Not to mention, you know, you have wealth and status, but in front of Jesus, none of that mattered. Not that it mattered, but none of that uh, could compare to the fact. And she was brutally, brutally murdered. Um, and so, the, her the she prophesied. Actually, you'll love this. She prophesied over her own martyrdom in prison. She had dreams and visions of how she would die. So, you know, these kinds of, these sorts of women <laughs> were hugely influential. And at a certain point in, in the church and in the empire, uh, stories of, peop- of people like St. Agnes and St. Uh, Perpetua and others just like took, I mean, they were so popular. Their, their, hero- their heroism was so, so popular. And that was very influential in the church. So um, we, have to, we have to remember. These women, and there are more like them. Gosh, there are so many more like them. But I, I also think of um, the women who helped Saint Jerome, uh, Saint Jerome who converted the Bible into Latin, and we, you know, owe him a huge debt. Um, but Saint Jerome would never have been Saint Jerome without Saint Paula, who funded uh, the scriptural translations. Um, and he even got annoyed at some women who kept kind of pushing him to do all these projects, you know, and start these monasteries and start these convents and start these. So, you know, when you say that women are often forgotten and left behind, it's true. I mean, the more I study early church history and church history in general, there's always a woman there that is really driving it. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's the complementarity between the sexes and the church is, is stunningly beautiful. That's
1: fantastic. Well, Simone, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and how people can connect with you online?
0: Yes. Well, for those who are listening, that would I'll uh, definitely like love to maybe read um, Catholic or not. We have we have people from all different faith traditions that do this. Um, would like to read uh, Edith Stein or John Paul II's um letter to women or his his encyclical um on the nature and dignity of women, which when you read it, you must think of Egerstein because he really took what she philosophized about and ran with it, um, then please take a look at endowgroups.org and, um, and look at those study guides and see if you wanna start a small group community on there. That's about eight to 12 weeks to get through a document. Um, and then if you'd like to reach me personally, um, I have a blog called culturalgypsy.com um, cause I'm a little, a little Egyptian transplant. And I would love to hear from you there.
1: That's awesome. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, thank you so much for being a guest.
0: Thank you. My pleasure.
1: And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram at Dismantle Pod. You can shoot us an email at DismantlePod at gmail.com. But until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. (laughs)